Gentlemen, would you care to see uh, some more of the uh, Krell wonders? Indeed, yes. yes. If you will, step in this shuttle car. You're listening to Breadbeat, a podcast sharing short stories and poems by the UChicago community, brought to you by Sliced Bread Magazine in collaboration with The Vein. I'm your host, Hadar Lazar. Today, we're lucky to have Julian Spurgel reading Lillian Solonik's story, The Byzantine Birds. I walked into the ward at 8.15 a.m. on Thursday as usual, in the tenth week of my job as scribe and sitter, and as usual, the ward was full of song. The Proofrock Project was a low-profile operation run by the Neuroscience Research Division of the Pritzker School of Medicine at the University of Chicago. Pritzker Proofrock Project, all those harsh bilabial plosives a cruel joke in the face of those grotesquely drooping lips and bright eyes set in waxy complexions. Those lips, awkward, unused instruments, would never pronounce the P. The silence first appeared in statistically significant numbers 30 years ago, in 1993, and government subcommittees magicked themselves into existence to deal with this enigma, this social problem. But the committees and councils came and went, each as hopelessly inadequate as the next. How does a government deal with a population of people incapable of understanding or producing any form of human communication? No one could explain their origin. The usual Heaven's Gates types composed doctrine condemning the silence as instruments of Satan or else worshipping them as prophets of God who had taken a neurological vow of silence until they were ready to deliver the Lord's message unto man. The children were put into special classrooms and then removed from the schools. They didn't do anything. They responded only to basic sensory stimuli while mostly just milling about unaware of their teachers, unaware of each other, seemingly unable to recognize sentience in anyone or anything else. Occasionally, one would stop to inspect some object that momentarily caught their inscrutable attention, budding Adam's apple bobbing furiously. They were creepy. And after a while, the silent children grew up, and once they were older, they were no longer forgiven for their condition. Outside, the sun was still low on the horizon. I nodded to the beefy, superfluous security guard and peeled off my brown felt coat and navy beanie. I ascended the stairs from the dreary concrete cavern up to the baby blue psychiatric nursery, that floated just above the frostbitten mid-December Chicago streets. My log-brown hair rose around my face in a cloud of static. That ascent, those hole-punched, uneven steel steps, was the worst part of my day. They clanged and grated against the senses, hollow, massive. It transformed my size seven footsteps into those of a pacing monster or a dreaded drunken foster father, hog butcher to the world. I could believe that. Silence, they called them. Well. The project hadn't cured them, but they sure were not silent anymore. The air in the hallways vibrated with their humming, unsettling, harmonious, and impossibly melodious. I was not privy to the intimate details of the project, but I gathered this from my time there. About two years ago, the directors began administering transcranial magnetic stimulation therapy to a group of silence, focused on the two communication centers of the brain. In the left hemisphere, both Broca's area and Wernicke's area, responsible for production of speech and comprehension, respectively, were underdeveloped and practically dormant in all subjects. In contrast, there was a constant firestorm of electrical activity in the nucleus accumbens, and the amygdala was startlingly enlarged. These primal centers of emotion and reptilian response seemed to take the place of the usual flurry of cortical activity that accompanies human cognition. In each subject, limited activity can be induced in Broca's area, and the basal ganglia, responsible for fine motor control. 
The subjects were administered a low dose of phenobarbital to control the tendencies for the silenced throat's to spasm, but this did not lead to an ability to form words. Something far stranger and completely unexpected happened. They began to sing. I once saw a Tuvin throat singing concert at the university. It was a loud, wet drone overlaid with the most exquisite intertwining melodies that sang out clear and heavenly above the brusque, earthy roar. This comparison roughly approximates the phenomenon of the silence, but it did not prepare me for it. These 23 semi-catatonic, non-communicative units of flesh became angels. They hummed. Deep in their throats, a resonant primary monotone, accompanied by soaring yet subliminal overtones that wove in and out of the periphery of consciousness. Like golden birds from Byzantium, they sang together, in harmony with one another, without seeming to be aware of the presence of any others. When the directors first heard the singing, I heard that they wept. A tape recorder and several cameras were constantly running on the ward, but they were as good as useless. Any and all audio recordings of the silence, be they analog or digital, seemed to fail to capture anything beyond the central tone, the droning hum. Even the most expensive new equipment failed to record the song. The directors thought that they had gone mad, but every carefully selected observer they brought in heard the song too. Animals, particularly canines, responded to it by quaking and whining high and hoarse. They shrugged and conjectured that the silence were producing an only partially external experience. Something in the resonance of the overtones stimulated the empathic faculties of the listener, which then generated an internal pseudo-audio response that could not be detected by microphones or induced in machines, which is where I came in. My job, terrifically well paid, was to listen to and verbally record the nature of their songs for six hours a day, four days a week. Beyond that, I was to babysit them. I had to make sure they ate, bathed, and went to sleep. I found the job from a flyer in the bathroom of the Regenstein Library that September, tore off a number, and landed it. I was a third-year graduate student in comparative literature with a Bachelor of Science in Nursing. My qualifications were substantiated by a writing sample and my willingness to spend an hour on the L each way and keep quiet. I came to arm with a tablet, a laptop computer, and a pad of paper. During the day, I shared the ward with two junior research directors who poked and prodded their shivering subjects. I was alone with the silence from 5 to 7 in the evening, Monday through Thursday. The junior research directors worked six days each week. They were allowed to wear sonic disruptive earplugs, but I was tied to the mast. They called me the English major derisively, though a touch of fondness as time passed. Dr. Choi had just defended his thesis. He was only a few years older than my 23, but he had a salt and pepper head of hair and superior attitude. After all, Choi held a doctorate in computational neuroscience. I was writing my thesis on William Butler Yeats and late antiquity. Dr. Jesuit was a severely angled, humorless woman with a PhD in biological psychology. In conversation, she gave the unsettling impression of looking through your facial expressions and speech as though she was discerning the structural changes in cephalic tissue that accompanied each vocalization of thought. They were elitist eggheads. Mostly our interactions consisted of civil nods of acknowledgement. Some days, though, the three of us would have lunch together in the soundproofed office. Dr. Choi's and Jesuit showed me a taqueria around the corner from the ward. It was cheap, tasty little low-tech supermercado cafe with a laminate counter and spinning cone of pork under heat lamps in the back. We shouted our orders in patchy secondary school Spanish, the ubiquitous United Conglomerates Digital Food Service kiosks, U8s, were nowhere to be found. 
I always felt left out of their lunchtime chatter. But it didn't matter, because they weren't there for the company and I wasn't there for the solitude. We were there for the silence. One Friday, we were walking back with our paper bags translucent from the grease, when I asked my clumsy layman's question. Is it easier for you, as scientists, to understand why it's so... Why are they so hopeless and impotent and afraid? I asked. Well, they seem to feel rather than to think, said Dr. Choi, fond of non-answers. But it seems to me that they could just as well be elated. I disagree, said Dr. Jesuit. In bypassing cognition, the silence are less removed from their environment, and as such, it would appear that the only reasonable reaction to the unadulterated input of the world would be one of sorrow and fear. That sounds more like philosophy than neuroscience, I offered. I have degrees in both, she said. Besides, the clandestine character of Project Proofrock requires us to be both philosophers and scientists. Scientists discover the mechanism of the most compelling, mysterious condition known to medicine, and philosophers to make sense of the implications of the science in private. Separately, of course, Helen, Dr. Choi said, broad brow furrowed. <laughs> of course, or you'll end up like Dr. Kremlin, she said. Who? I asked. Oh, Dr. Kremlin, the founder of Proofrock, after the initial round of transcranial magnetic stim, when the silence initiated vocalization, he started spending all of his time with them, just listening to them and crying. He stopped his clinical work just to hear them sing. He started sleeping in a cot in the corner of the ward, the pink and yellow corner. Dr. Jesuit's voice cracked up in query and then halted. He drowned himself in the river two weeks after that. She hesitated again. This was before they brought me in. I never met Dr. Kremlin. I forgot to take my next step. And that's why we wear noise-isolating earplugs now. I don't wear earplugs. Obviously, Kremlin had a pre-existing depressive condition. We all cleared this neuropsych eval. I don't wear earplugs. I am paid too well. I wondered if those two thoughts were related in a way that I would not care to discover. I didn't eat with the junior directors in the office. I sat on the steps and ate my carnitas on the killing floor, hog butcher to the world. As the weeks passed, I spent more of my time away from work thinking about the silence. My work on my thesis slowed and then stopped. The only thing I could think about was that room full of broken angels. Their song made me sick with sorrow. I started getting scared. I was startled by my shadow, by the morning light. I was frightened by the cold breakfast cereal in my cold, crumbling studio apartment. I lost the desire to do anything but find a way to perfectly transubstantiate the silent song into words. By the end of the first month, my notebook became increasingly disorganized as I struggled to describe the song. I'd begun to suspect that if I could describe it exactly, with the precision of a poet, the description would become an explanation and my fever would recede. In the beginning, I had marked simple observations. 10.42 a.m., shifting key from D minor to E minor. 10.55 a.m., decrescendo from approximately 65 decibels to approximately 45 decibels following administration of increased dose of phenobarb, 25 milligrams, 35 milligrams IV. I no longer found this adequate. I looked to Yeats. An aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick, unless soul clap its hands and sing, and louder sing, for every tatter in its mortal dress. But that wasn't right. It was imprecise. The music of words, which I believed so strongly in, was irreconcilably alien to the silence music. There was no combination of symbols or sheet music that could provide an analog. 
For the silence, there was no score but isolation. It was an endlessly variable yet oppressively consistent. It shouted. It screamed. But what it declared so passionately was inaccessible to me. All at once, one December day, I understood. The music was an expression of pure terror, tempered only by agonizing sorrow. That was clear, but the truth of it, the immensity of the alienation, was unimaginable to all but a student of the silence. I had been approaching it all wrong. There was no way to understand the silence through a construction of language, no matter how precise. The reason for their terror and pain was nonverbal, pre-rational. The mind shrank from such horror. To seek to understand was to surrender the Apollonian in exchange for a Dionysian experience that was all pain and fear, no ecstasy. It was to repudiate logos, the denial of reason. The silence walked about or sat in chairs or reclined on their beds listlessly, seemingly to be only marginally aware of their own movements and their fellows. They hummed constantly. They were an impossible 23-part harmony. Only their eyes were sharp, lucid, an unsettling contrast to their languorous postures. Through their song, their experience became clear. They shared it with the world. Without language, without a medium in which to conceive of physical phenomena, the silence experienced the world as a shifting, undifferentiated monolith hostile to their selfhood, selves which could only be quantified only by their negative sense of total exclusion. There were no identifiable patterns, for they possessed nothing with which to identify such patterns. The objects of their perception could not be drawn through the center of cognition, for there was none. The universe of the silence was raw sensation, and the fear and horror that this unintelligible universe provoked in them. They could not even scream until the project gave them song. When I understood this, it was too late. Dr. Kilpatrick, upon reading my frantic eighth-week notes, left a terse message on my answering machine, suggesting that I take some time off and reminding me of my non-disclosure agreement. I was already heartbroken and scared. Scared. The silence had done it. They had found a way to communicate in the absence of thought. In response, I was hopeless, restless, desperate. I yearned for what I could not say. On a Thursday, I resigned as scribe to these damned souls. The Proofrock Project never kept interns for longer than three months. I lasted nine weeks. That evening, I put the silence to bed and administered three times the lethal dose of phenobarbital to each one. I turned the lights off as I exited the factory. It was the winter solstice, and the sun had long since set. I nodded to the lone, heavy-set security guard who perched on a stool by the door, humming something barely audible under his breath. He jutted his fleshy chin out at me, a lazy blue-collar salute. I stepped into the blue, premature nighttime and hummed a little to myself as I walked to the train station. You can find the Byzantine birds in the 2013 edition of Slice Bread. Goodbye, all. <laughs> no, 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 no. Wait, hold on, hold on. Goodbye, all. 20 miles. 20 miles. Listen. Circuits opening and closing, and they never rest. This is one of their ventilator shafts. You can feel the warm air rising. Look down here. Look down, gentlemen, are you afraid? <laughs>